This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Kenneth Nixon Jr. Kenneth is a pastor, community organizer, and mental health advocate. He knows firsthand what it means to navigate personal mental health challenges while also navigating a broken system on behalf of a loved one. Kenneth speaks out about the need for reform in the mental health system and works to improve the lives of those affected by mental illness. He also is the founder of the nonprofit justice organization called Justice Now. Kenneth joins me today to talk about his debut memoir, Born into Crisis, in which he discusses the necessary steps to healing and breaking free from the cycles of family traumas. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Kenneth. Thank you. I'm glad to be on with you. I'm happy to have you here on this day after Easter. I'm sure yesterday was a busy day for you. Um, <laughs> Why well, I'm going to ask you the first question that I ask everybody, which is, can you tell me, where does your story as an author begin? Really, my story as an author, and I'm going to take a little unorthodox approach here, as an author started with the passing of my father in 2019 from uh, cancer. And I was alongside him that entire journey. It was very brief because... The onset of his diagnosis was April of 2019, and his passing away was June 30th of 2019. And it really, at a foundational level, shook my reality and my world because the one constant in my life all of these years and source of strength and really rock in, in, in any sense for me was my father. And having him transition to eternal life really allowed me time to really grieve and grapple with the totality of my whole story. From beginning with the mother with severe mental illness, my father raising me in the environment I grew up in. And now I'm having to learn a world in which my father's not there, which he's always been a big part of my story. So that's where it started, ironically. It started with the passing of my father and it being partly a grieving process that it helped me get through the loss of my father, but it also allowed me to use that as a catalyst to tell my story. So that was when you started to draft this memoir? No, I actually started drafting it 2021, December. So it was a couple of years later. It actually took me a while to really come to terms with who I am absent of not having my father 
and you're a son and a father as well. It's one of those things where I was still for a couple of years picking up the phone, like, oh, nope, can't call dad or something I would catch on TV. So it really took some time. It wasn't immediately after his passing, but I started really wrestling with writing the memoir early winter of 2021, so December. Okay, got it, got it. Tell me, just tell me a little bit about you and your life and where you grew up. And I'd love to know the story of how you you became a pastor as well. Yeah. So I've had a little bit of a transient lifestyle in terms of homes because my family were renters a lot. And with me being born to a mother with severe mental illness, uh, and my father took custody of me when I was a week old. I was born in Arlington, Virginia, in a community called Green Valley, which is in South Arlington, which is usually where you would find back then in the 80s, where most folks of low income or a lower middle class in terms of economic status would live in South Arlington. And my father sent me to live with my grandmother, his mother, in North Carolina, in Shelby, North Carolina. And I spent a couple of years, my toddler years in North Carolina, but then I ended up in an urban setting in Baltimore, Maryland, in eastern Baltimore, not too far from the Inner Harbor, which had had its own diverse and complex experiences and things to deal with. And then from there, we settled in the Northern Virginia area around Fairfax County, Fairfax County and Prince William County area in Northern Virginia. Throughout that whole uh, transient move, it was really based off of the economics that caused us to keep moving, but it was also finding a sense of community wherever family needed the most help or support, whether it was my grandmother or my aunt. It was more of a community thing for people to stay afloat is what we did. Yeah. So you you removed from your mother's care you very early on by your dad. Mm-hmm. Were he and your mom together at that time or no? No. And funny story, I tell my 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 friends they're wonderful. The first thing my dad was very transparent with me because he was young and he was partying and then and that <clears throat> met her at a party. They hit it off. One thing led to another. And they have a child, yeah. but they never actually dated or had any type of long-term relationship. Uh, And I write in my book that I was a product of a party night, essentially, between my dad and my mother. And that's how the foundation of the relationship or lack thereof was based off of that. When we settled back into Arlington after leaving Baltimore, that's where I had the beginning, a lot of my traumatic encounters, whether it was at school or whether her coming into the home is where a lot of that happened. But her and my mother, my mother and my father never had an actual relationship. But Ramona did have my mother's first name, did have a pretty close relationship with my grandmother, ironically, who uh, as best she could look, look after her sometimes. Yeah. So when did you start having more frequent interactions with your mom? It sounds like after leaving Baltimore and then coming into Virginia. Mm-hmm. T- tell me a little bit what that was like being with your mom for probably the first time you can remember. Yeah, yeah as a child, as an adult, I place everything in the context of, of systems and environments. But as a child, 
it's all confusion and trauma, right? So I'm five, six, seven years old. And uh, my first encounter, I remember where I first understood the concept that she was my mother was probably when I was, was five. And that's when she kicked in the door of the apartment that we were at. And I was actually sitting at the kitchen table working on, it had to have been a math problem. I write this in here because she walked up to the table and I believe she asked me what was two plus two or something of that nature. But I was frozen because I didn't know who this woman was. And she was screaming at the top of her lungs. I remember my dad coming down the steps halfway and they were just going back and forth. And then within an instant, she was gone. <laughs> and that kind of set the stage for understanding the other encounters. And when my school would go on lockdown and my kindergarten, first grade teachers would put me in a supply closet and make pretend that we were doing a cookie monster show and some other, they were very creative. I found out after I talked to them years later as a way to, to keep me safe as the school was being secured because she was on campus or where I would be at the rec center, which was around the corner called the Walter Reed Recreation Center. And she would spot me and try to make her way towards me, but I was trained and conditioned that when I saw her, I either had to make my way to an adult within the recreation center hide, or quickly make my way home. And think about that for a second. A six or seven-year-old running from their mother on sight, like we're trying to hide from the person who really is supposed to be their nurturer. And that's where as an adult, I'm like, okay, something's wrong here systematically, that someone would be just out in crisis, but also the systems to support children who are going through these things. And it had adverse effects on, on, on me in school and other places where I had some behavioral problems as a kid. Yeah. How could it not? That's traumatic. But what was it your mother was suffering from? Among other illnesses, it was bipolar, one disorder, schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, and manic depressive disorder, and PTSD. Okay. That, that is just, none of those are easy in and of themselves without the right care and treatment, but having multiple and throw in a little PTSD in there and I can only imagine. So tell me a little bit about her experience in getting care because get the sense that's um, yeah. one of the things at the heart of your story. Yeah. So one, one of the things going back from like the 60s to I would say the early 80s, there was a big push to close down massive psychiatric hospitals because yeah. they were just epicenters of mistreatment and lacking of care, and they were just warehousing people. And the whole concept was that we would deinstitutionalize peoples in these massive hospitals, and in its place would go community-based centers and treatment facilities where people can stay in their communities with their family to get community-based treatment, but also have a way to integrate back into community. The Closing of those hospitals happened, but that community-based system did not go in place of it. Yeah. So what went in place of it was an unfunded mandate, so to speak, where that burden shifted to the legal and justice system. So if someone was in crisis, no one knew who to call besides 911. So you had a situation where 
her first point of contact. And as a point of fact, the largest treatment facilities in the United States today still are local city and county jails. They are still the largest treatment facilities for mental health individuals in this country. Yeah. Someone calls 911, a law enforcement officer shows up. They have some level of training or they don't have any training at all. And they're dealing with someone who really needs a medical professional and not necessarily law enforcement. So they, her treatment ended up either one or two places, zip tied to a gurney in the emergency room, because emergency rooms in our country are there to treat physical emergencies, not mental health emergencies. So zip tied to a gurney in an emergency room with the law enforcement officer who is not on the streets doing public safety, they're having to stay there with her, waiting for an open state bed somewhere in the state that she can be admitted. And that can take a day, that can take six days, depending on capacity. And all the while, she's sitting there without treatment, zip tied to a gurney. That's one route. The other path is, she gets incarcerated. Now it could be for disturbing the peace. It could be for disorderly conduct. It could be for drunken public. It can be for a myriad of things while she's in crisis that she did. That's yes, a violation of the law. The underlying issue being that mental health issue, which feeds into substance abuse issues. So she's incarcerated. But the sad part about this is the cycle. The key when you're institutionalized is that they stabilize and then release when you're in the state facilities. You don't go into any long-term treatment. And that creates a cycle because they're not getting that wraparound community-based support and treatment. But then you have the incarceration piece where, yes, the system will get to know this person has mental health issues, uh, that they were going to constantly see them. But what they did with my mom historically especially in the late 80s and early 90s, was they did a null process, which essentially means they did not proceed with the charges. They weren't dismissed, but they weren't charged. So she kept being in a cycle of going before a judge and being incarcerated for disorderly conduct, drunk in public. <laughs> so building this criminal record, but not addressing the mental health component. Yeah. Yeah, I remember your providing this example, I studied psychology as an undergraduate, and this is in the early 90s, and I wanted to become a clinical psychologist. And I remember just hearing my my professors talk about what happened over the past 30 years in terms of closing the big facilities and not having a place for people to go. There was these grand plans, as you mentioned, community health centers, which weren't built or weren't funded. And a lot of the homeless, I don't live too far from New York City, a lot of our homeless problem was a direct result of closing those facilities. And so I guess the big question is, what do we do about it? And, and what, how did you, have you spent your life trying to figure out solutions to this problem? So the great thing about your question and that I don't have to come up with some brand new theory or some new system on my own, we actually have the things necessary. We just fund it and actually let the experts and the evidence take us there. And one of the models that I'm a big proponent of that I write about in the book that I'm actually 
helping to advocate for full implementation in the Commonwealth of Virginia is the Crisis Now model, which addresses three keys in that, that stool. Some place to call, which is the 988 number, the habit of the 988 number. Some place to go, which is the crisis receiving centers. And then you talk about the wraparound services and the community-based resources necessary for that person to not just be stabilized, but to be in long-term support plans and treatment, including wraparound services that may include permanent supportive housing, because housing is one of the key factors in helping those who become stable to stay stable and have secure housing. So what I've been proposing in my writing and in advocacy is that the first thing we have to address is the infrastructure, that community-based system that has not been put into place and build these crisis receiving centers so people can go to these facilities voluntarily without needing to interact with law enforcement. They also are facilities that allow law enforcement to have a soft handoff within three to five minutes and they can get back to doing public safety or a loved one can take someone there and drop them off and they get immediate treatment. They're not just sitting in an emergency room for hours or days or locked up in a local jail, but they're going to these facilities and getting immediate treatment. And the last point I make is you can look at a great example either in San Antonio, Texas, or you can look at Maricopa County in Arizona where there was a full implementation of the crisis now model of care and a hundred million dollar investment in this type of model resulted in hundred hundreds of millions of dollars in emergency psychiatric boarding hours. It's resulted in savings of over 40 full-time equivalent police officers responding to mental health calls. It's resulted in savings on a myriad of areas where you're having people go into treatment facilities instead of local jails, instead of local emergency rooms, tying up law enforcement resources. So it's a model that is effective if we actually have the will and create the power to actually move that system in place. It sounds like it's not only effective in helping people get treatment, but it's also sustainable. And you could, and lawmakers, I'm sure, love to hear that, that it's, it's not just the right thing to do, but it also save X amount of money mm -hmm. by doing it because it's not taking away from other resources. Yes. So I'm curious, you mentioned something before about you having obviously a difficult or some challenges as a result of mm -hmm. what your mom was going through and the protocol that you would have to follow personally when your mother would be around. How did you turn your own life around? How did you go from being, because it sounds like maybe you were at risk. I don't want to put words mm -hmm. in your mouth, but that's what mm -hmm. I was hearing. How did you turn your own life around? You know, what, that's a very nuanced question. And I say that and I'm going to try to answer because I can spend two hours on, on that specific piece. So I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. I would say partially luck. And I say luck from the standpoint of the father that I was fortunate to have, because I do have other brothers and sisters that, that were born to the same mother, but they did not have their fathers in their lives. And they ended up 
right now, I would say both of my brother and my sister are dealing, not only are they dealing with underlying mental health issues, but they also ended up down a path in which they've had to deal with the justice system and deal with consequences of bad decisions. And for me, having the father that I had was key to that because I had a sense of stability, even in the midst of chaos, because I developed a childhood PTSD. I still deal with anxiety on top of some depression. Those are things that are with me that I see. I seek a therapist and I go to uh, a therapist twice a month to talk through those things. But for me, being able to even have the chance to have a stable life, to be a productive member of society, to raise a family, to fulfill whatever dreams that I have, I had a stable parent. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm trying It doesn't have to be, everyone needs a stabilizing force in their life as they're growing up. In absence of that, it is very hard for children to grow into being productive adults. That's why I'm a big proponent of having children in foster care as short amount as possible or the family that they're with long-term because instability growing up makes it exponentially harder as adults for people to develop good financial habits of managing money, paying bills, functioning at a high capacity and knowing how to make or rebound from decisions that weren't so effective. I would say having a stabilizing force in terms of a parent was crucial into me being able to turn around my life anytime I hit rough path. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the book. After all, you are an author and that's how I, how we met. <laughs> I don't know how. I Why do you say surprisingly? <laughs> because I started out saying, well, I must be crazy trying to write a book because I've never written a book. Most that where do you start? Everyone starts not having written a book, but at the same time, I, if it's not a newspaper or a magazine, I cannot get through books. They just bore me <laughs> for some reason. So the concept of me actually writing a book was a little far-fetched to me. So I had a lot of fits and starts. What the heck am I doing? But yeah, I got through it. That's why I said surprising. I'm curious, as you're writing the book, and the book is Born Into Crisis, what did you learn about yourself going through the writing process? I know you mentioned before that it's, it's part of a healing process for you. I'm curious to hear more about that too, but what did you learn personally about yourself while tackling this project? One, I learned I'm a better storyteller than I thought I was because that was one of my biggest challenges as I was writing them, that uh, am I giving enough information? Is this making sense? Am I telling the story the right way? Am I showing instead of telling and really having uh, my publisher and the editors throughout this process really helped me to uncover my story and really break it apart. So what I learned about myself is that I am a good storyteller and that words have the power to create change more than people realize. 
if they just take the time to put some structure around it, put some coherent thoughts. And what I learn uh, about myself is that I truly have developed to the point where I no longer see the stories that are on these pages as a point of pain or a point of trauma. While I have effects, PTSD and stuff that resulted from it, it's a source of me giving back to say, here is a story. It just happens to be mine. And I'm using this as a catalyst for advocacy to say more of us need to share these stories as a way to the needle on mental health, because this is a subject that doesn't have the lobbyists that descend on Capitol Hill or local capitals and states uh, banging on the door, demanding funding and all of this type of stuff. So if we're going to move the needle, it's going to take those impacted either directly or indirectly, bringing their stories, their collective voices to create a shared power to move on this issue. So what I've learned about myself is that I can put my stories in a fashion that can be a tool for uh, the conversation around systemic change. Mentioned your capabilities as a storyteller. Now, I haven't known you for all that long, maybe 28 minutes, but I can definitely sense that there's a big storyteller in there. Mm -hmm. And and I've interviewed a fair number of clergy, pastors, rabbis, priests, nuns who've written books. And the one thing they all have in common is being a great storyteller. And I think a lot of that maybe has to do with the fact that you've got to write a sermon pretty often, weekly. Yeah. Some people do it daily. But I imagine you've probably leaned into that in, yeah. in, when doing some preaching. Yeah, I did lean into that. It's funny you mentioned that because I do highlight to people that I think that was a benefit of me being a minister and having to write sermons and crystallize things in a way that's relatable to the congregation and demystifies some of the, the, the texts that are in scripture. But it's also helped, not in the cadence, but also to make my writing feel conversational. And that's one of the things I was afraid of as I was going through the writing. I don't want to lecture people. I don't want to necessarily bore people or give them something where uh, they can just Google the information. But I really wanted it to be one big relational meeting. And someone can say, hey, on this particular issue, this is who Kenneth Nixon is. I'm telling the story. And now I understand why he's advocating for change in, in, in the mental health system, which is part two of the book, The Call to Action. And so I wanted to create it in two parts. One, a big hello relational piece. This is my story. This is my core interest, the fire in the belly, what makes me tick around this stuff. And this is where that deep-seated passion comes from. And here's the call to action, what I'm doing to act on that healthy appetite. Yeah, I'm curious. You mentioned not wanting to bore people and you are telling the first part a very personal story. How was it working? How did you find working with your editor or editors and publisher to refine what you put together as first and second draft? I actually enjoyed it because it, I love being able to see the flaws in what I do because when you're 
writing or anything that you're doing, it's all you're in your own mind, it's your own thoughts. I think the one thing that surprised me is they kept pushing me to write more. I'm like, what do you mean, write more? Like, I'm barely getting through the pages <laughs> that I have in front of me right now. <laughs> and they kept stripping back and saying, write more, that whole show versus tell. And they were really pushing me to get to a really raw place where I was showing emotion. And I think the rawest I got was detailing the days and the moments of my father's illness and leading up to his passing. But I found that give and take as really healthy. It allowed me to see, even though they were editors and publisher, they're also readers, right? Because they're reading your story to really fine tune it. But I can tell you, I, w I was getting frustrated every time they came back and said, can we get 5,000 more words? I'm like, 5,000 more words? <laughs> I barely got through the three that I you told me. <laughs> that was the frustrating part. Well, but it means that you had a story that, that they wanted to hear more of. And oftentimes with editors, I'll send an editor 100,000 words for a novel, and it'll come back with 30,000 of them cut out. So usually that's how they roll. It's, hey, we got to cut a lot of this fat out of here, and you got to kill your babies or whatever they call yeah. it. Kill your darlings. Uh, but I think it just meant they wanted more. They needed, yeah. more cow they needed more cowbell from you, Kenneth. No, that's true. They cut out a lot. I think the frustration was they cut it out and then told me to write more. <laughs> Did you write more? Well, yeah. I could see where that would be extremely frustrating. <laughs> but I just, I gave you more and you cut it. They have to earn their pay too. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. But it is a collaborative process working with, yeah. you know, and I always like to tell authors who, aspiring authors rather, that you don't view your editor or your publisher as adversaries. They're there to collaborate with you. You really do have to partner with them and your agent as well to, because they know, you're right, they're readers and they know this business. They know this business better than we do. We just write the stuff. They make a living off of it. I'll give you a great example if you yeah. indulge me for a moment. Please, so, yeah. Well, I wrote the book actually in the cadence of a sermon without realizing that. And my editor, who is actually a Don Roffel, who's an accomplished author and writer, professor of her own right, came back to me and she's the reason it's in part one and part two of separating what she called unbraiding my narrative because anytime I would tell a story, I would immediately tie it to the advocacy and then I would go to another story and then tie it. And she said, this is confusing. Like you're jumping from story to no one can just enjoy like the story because you're going straight into kind of the policy piece and then you're starting a new story going into the policy. And she really took, I thought I was doing great. I'm like, I'm on a roll here. And she just shred my whole manuscript and say, rebuild it in part one and part two, let the story stand by themselves. And then people can tie that whole action into your story. Yeah. Yeah, and it's probably a smart thing to do because, yeah, you're right. At times we get so wrapped up in what we're doing and so excited about it. Uh, we don't realize we're bouncing readers all over the place. So you got to make their, <laughs> yeah, you got to keep it a little bit simple for them sometimes. Tell me, where can people go out and buy Born into Crisis if they wanted to go out and buy it right now? Yes, they can go. Born into Crisis is currently on sale for pre order at anywhere books are sold. I'm a big proponent of supporting independent bookstores, but you can also get it on 
Amazon.com. You can get it on Barnes and Noble, any, any, anywhere books are sold. All right. And if people are thinking to themselves, gosh, this Kenneth guy sounds really interesting. How can I get in touch with him? Or how can I, where can I follow him on social media? Do you have a website or social media yes. handles you want you, to share with us? Yes. So you can follow me on social media. My website is authorkennethnixon.com, authorkennethnixon.com, where you can start to join my subscriber list for news and happenings that are going on in, in my life. But you can also follow me on Instagram at Kenneth underscore Nixon Jr. Uh, on Instagram, Kenneth underscore Nixon Jr. on Instagram. That's where I hang out the most and uh, interact with folks. All right. So I'll be sure to put a link to all of that in our show notes so people can just go into the write-up for this episode and find your website, links to your book, and as well as your Instagram. Thank you. I really appreciate your time and the conversation. I wish we had more time, honestly. What would you like to talk if we had, if we, let's say if we had 10 more minutes, Kenneth, what would you like to talk about? <laughs> I would really like to talk about, so that's just the pastor in me. I understand your story. What got you into podcasting? It's almost like flipping the table. Like, how, how did you get into doing <laughs> podcasting? What's your story? I'll tell you what, I will spare my listeners that because they've heard it all before, <laughs> but I will stop recording and we can have a conversation about right. it. Sorry, I had to stop recording. So, Kenneth, thank you for stopping by uncorking a story and letting me uncork yours. No problem. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.